welcome to this uh, brand new episode of the Satisfied God Podcast. Uh, Raven Bird, once again with you, and it's a pleasure as always. Um, this episode is going to be a continuation of the previous episode where we are in Romans chapter 9 and we're at the end of the chapter and I'm going to go ahead and read from verse 30 of Romans 9 down to uh, 33. It says, what shall we say then, and I'm reading from King James, what shall we say then that the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. We were addressing this distinction that Paul is making between the Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness of, or it says, did not follow after righteousness, attained to righteousness. And then he clarifies, even the righteousness which is of faith, which is the only righteousness that there is. However, the Jews who sought after the law of righteousness, and you see the way he worded that, it's very, very uh, clear. He did not say they, they, they sought righteousness and followed after righteousness. He says the Israelites, the Jews, followed after the law of righteousness, but they did not attain to the law of righteousness. And we, in the previous lesson that I don't want to go over and hash over again, I cut this in half because it, was a, it would be a... a a real lengthy lesson, if not, but just to point things out. The Gentiles received the gospel, and in receiving and believing the gospel, they received the salvation that is of God and not of them, a, a, a righteousness not of works, not of works of law, because they did not have a law. So they did not pursue righteousness after the law. The Jews, however, pursued the law of righteousness and followed after the law of righteousness. And what Paul means by saying, but they did not attain to the law of righteousness, he is not saying they did not do what the law of righteousness required properly or uh, correctly. The word therefore attained uh, when referring to the Jews, as we covered, is the word to arrive at, as if to, to arrive at a particular goal or destination. The law that they pursued became the place in which they pursued it. They took the law, divorced it from its prophetic messianic intention, pointing to Christ, pointing to his coming. And they took the law to themselves as an instruction, 
as a command that they had to keep. And in that law, they sought righteousness. But that is not the righteousness that the law itself described or to which it pointed or of which it testified. As we said, the law as designed by God would have brought the heart and did bring many to its own conclusion. It was a schoolmaster to guide you to the end of the matter. But those who sought the law of righteousness used the law of righteousness as a means to attain their own righteousness, as he'll say in Romans chapter 10. They did not come to the spirit, the intent, the heart of God that was described and pointed at and, and, and declared in the law. They did not allow the law to do what it was in what it was designed of God to do. So they did not attain. They did not seek it by faith. They sought it by law. And we dealt with in the last class that there is a correlation in these two chapters, uh, verses 9 and then in what Paul says in chapter 9 of Romans and what he says at the beginning of chapter 10 concerning his people, his brethren according to the flesh, that his sorrow and his desire for them and his prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. Because again, he understood that this is the moment where righteousness actually comes to be the state of the soul of man. When that man comes to believe and and receives Christ and is born of the Spirit of God. That's when righteousness himself comes to take abode and become the, the abiding reality of the soul. And that is Christ, as Paul would say, coming to the soul and being made unto the soul the righteousness of God in perfection. So that is what we're, that's what we're addressing here is this distinction between those who sought it one way and those who attained it by faith. Those who sought by law and those who attained by faith. And as I said at the end of the last uh, lesson, there are a couple of parables that I want to go over with you today. But let's, let's again understand the distinction being made here is important as we go into these parables. We're not, you know, leaving this behind. This part of, of, of Romans 9, and basically what he's been saying the whole time in, in chapter 9 and before and after, will correspond to these parables. And... I want us to look at that because most people who look at these parables do not see it in that context. They see it as something that is being talked about maybe in the future sometime and a judgment that's going to come and make a separation and a judgment and division uh, one of these days. But I want us to understand that what we attain by faith is actually the soul partaking of a feast. It is the soul partaking 
of that which God has promised in its full abounding display. And that can only be attained when we believe. And we said there is a correlation between faith and the word Paul uses in chapter 10 of Romans concerning the Jews, and that has to do with submission. That word is they would not submit to the righteousness of God. They sought to establish a righteousness by the, by the law. They sought to establish it. They saw it as a tool. They saw it as a means when it was only and beautifully given of God to be a testimony of a righteousness that he would impute, not just offer, but impute to all who would receive that gift and submit to that gift, submit to a reality greater than you, submit to a salvation, a, a righteousness that is of him and not of yourself and humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may provide to you what you cannot attain for yourself. And that's, that's what faith is. It is a soul actually submitting, coalescing to the fact. It is not I. Righteousness is not me. Righteousness has nothing to do with me. Holiness is not of me. It, it has nothing. It is not in my power. It is not in my ability. And new birth is a soul submitting itself to God for him to do in it and be in it what only he can be. To give to that soul what only he can provide. And it is his pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is his pleasure to provide this gift. It is the fact that the God who did not withhold his own son, but delivered him up for us all, that with that son we receive freely all things. So with all that in mind, I want us to look at a couple of parables. One is found in Matthew both are found in Matthew, but one's in fa found in Matthew chapter 25. And we'll be reading from verse 1 down to verse 13. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, who having taken their lamps went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were prudent, five foolish, and that's the word uh, wise. Uh, the word prudent is, is in the King James. It is wise. They who were foolish, having taken their lamps, did not take with themselves oil. And the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And the bridegroom, tarrying, they all nodded and were sleeping. In the middle of the night, a cry was made, Lo, the bridegroom doth come. Go ye forth to meet him.
Then rose all the virgins and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us your oil, because our lamps are are going out. Our lamps going out. That's important. We'll, We'll talk about that. And the prudent answered, saying, Lest there may not be sufficient for us and you, go ye rather unto those selling and buy for yourself. And while they are going away to buy, the bridegroom came and those ready went in with him to the marriage feasts. And the door was shut. And afterwards came also, or, or afterwards come also do the rest of the virgins, the others who went to buy, saying, Sir, Sir, open to us. And he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I have not known you. Watch therefore, for you have not known the day, nor the hour in which the Son of Man doth come. So, here's the parable. It's a distinction again being made between wise virgins and foolish virgins. And... It says here that the foolish virgin virgins went, had their lamps, but did not have oil. But the wise had oil in their vessels. Now again, keep in mind this parable is what we're talking about as those who attempted by law to attain but did not attain and those who attained by faith attained to righteousness by faith now you know people today when when they read this most people who have a dispensational futuristic mindset they'll read this parable and they'll talk about how Christians have to have their oil in their lamp. And with what we're going to talk about, I and I wholeheartedly agree. But not because of the reason that most people believe that that is so. Because what they think is that one day the bridegroom's going to come out of nowhere. We're, you know, we're going to meet him and he's just going to come and it's going to say he's here, go out to meet him. And if we're not ready, man, we're going to be left. Well, that's true to a degree if you look at the context and the meaning of this parable, but that has nothing to do with Christians having to be ready for the rapture or the second coming. That's not what this is about at all. This is a distinction between those who had oil in their laps and those who did not. Now, notice again, they were going in this parable to see and meet the bridegroom. I want to take you to a particular place in John, chapter 3, in the Gospel of John. And I want to read something with regard to John the Baptist and what he says. And to understand this parable and, and, and the particular idea and, and concept of the bridegroom that's being addressed here and why this corresponds to the 
Romans chapter 9, where it's speaking of the division between those who attained it by faith and those who did not attain it because they sought it by the law of righteousness, not by submitting to the righteousness of God. (laughs) You go to what John says here. John chapter 3, trying to figure out a spot to begin. Let's just start in verse 25 of John 3. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond the Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, and behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Do you hear that? There is a transition happening here. There's a a change of ministry, or you could say administrations taking place here. And when they talk to John, they say everyone's going after him. Everyone's coming to him. It's the same concept and idea of they went to meet the bridegroom, go you forth to meet him. It's that uh, idea. But look at what he says. And they came unto John and says, the one, this guy that you talked about when you baptized him and said, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Everyone now is leaving you and going to him to be baptized. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. I am sent before him. Why? Again, the law and the prophets testified unto John. John's ministry was a culminating ministry. It culminated all of the law and the prophets, all of the ceremonies and testimonies and everything. It was an Uh, a a ministry of anticipation, and that anticipation climaxed in the appearing of Jesus. It came at that baptismal where he says, behold, the Lamb of God, behold, the end of your sacrifices, because this Lamb does and will do what your lambs, the millions that have been sacrificed throughout your history, what none of those lambs could do. It takes away the sin of the world. It removes it forever. It will not be needed to be done over and over and over again. So again, he's describing this transition that's happening. Here's the end of your ceremony. Here's the end of all sacrifices. So I did not say I was the Christ. This is his answer. I did not say I was him. I said I was sent before him. I am one who lays the groundwork and sets the stage for his coming. Now verse 29. He that hath the bride, he to whom the bride belongs, is the bridegroom. Meaning none of this, the whole intent of this was a a marriage. This whole thing, God's intent for this whole thing 
was him getting ready and preparing for a marriage and a marriage feast because the bridegroom is the only one of whom it can be said the bride belongs to him. But the friend of the bridegroom, which is his ministry, that's what he's there to do. He is the friend of the bridegroom. The, the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And this, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And this is when he says these words again that we have taken out of such context and, and done some terrible things with it. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. But he that cometh from heaven is above all. Now, so what does he say? I am the friend of the bridegroom. I am here and sent to you to prepare the way for the coming of the bridegroom so that I can facilitate the hand of the bride and the bridegroom coming together, that they may be united, that that marriage may actually take place as God the Father intended. He wanted his son to have a bride. And here it is. This is what's taking place. So here in the midst of this transition between the old covenant, new covenant, the the law and the prophets and Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, being the substance of which they testify. John stands there as the friend of the bridegroom to facilitate this joining together of those whom God had made these promises to and the bridegroom in his coming. And this is what we're seeing played out in this parable. This is what's happening. It's that transition that is taking place and there are those who are ready and those who are not. There are those who have oil and those who do not have oil. So this is actually speaking of the end of the Jewish age and the consummation of the kingdom of God being like the coming of a bridegroom to a waiting bridal party. So, in the midst of this transition that is taking place, this parable, because this is the parable, if you look at all of these parables, you realize that so many of the parables, or not, if not all of the parables in these chapters in Matthew are the same. They're speaking of the same thing, and we're going to talk about another one that does the same, and it's in Matthew as well. In this discourse that Jesus has given, he is driving it home that he is the one that they waited on. He's the one that was promised. But who are ready? Who have come to meet him in the only way that you can actually meet him? Who are ready to be united to their bridegroom? So this is exactly what's presented 
two distinct groups of virgins, the wise and the foolish. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, Paul writes, Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. This gives you a picture of what this wisdom is. Why were those who were had oil wise? And what was the oil? What does that represent? What is what does that represent? The oil represents faith unto salvation. It is salvation and righteousness through faith. That's the oil. The foolish did not have oil. They, again, you you <clears throat> look at uh, Paul having to go to these Christians in Galatians and say to them, foolish Galatians, they are acting as if they are fools. Why? Because they are looking again to the things of the law. They are looking to the things of the law to find righteousness. When he says, you have begun in the spirit, you have by faith He's going to go talk about the faith of Abraham after he says this and rebukes them for this and calls them fools. You have by faith received through the Spirit all things. And you cannot further perfect the perfection you have received through faith. Do not let any man, these seducers and deceivers, deceive you and seduce you. Hold to this which you have and hold to the scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. This is the wisdom. This is the wisdom of God that supersedes the wisdom of men. It's a wisdom that looks unto Christ as the substance of all, as the fullness of all, as the reality of all things, as the substance that God has brought into our hearts as a full and complete salvation. We have no room to boast except in Christ himself being made unto us all spiritual things. That's wisdom. That's God's wisdom being made known in our hearts. The wisdom of the five wise virgins is that they follow the scripture unto the salvation it testifies of. They follow the scripture unto Christ, unto, unto faith in Christ for the salvation that is not of works and not of ordinances and not of law. The foolish, their oil was running out. Their oil was running out. If you look at that transition again between the, the law and the coming of Christ, you see that very thing played out. It was coming to an end. Its time was coming to an end. Why? Because the time appointed of the Father was coming in the coming of Christ. The true heir, the true seed was coming. The time of the testimony was running out. The time of the external ordinances was coming to a conclusion. 
So the scripture itself would call him the end of the law, the goal of the law, so that righteousness could actually be attained. All right, guys, uh, let me just take a moment to add something to this as I was uh, going through it. I feel like I need to add something, and this is, uh, you know, adding it after the fact. So there'll be a difference in the volume and in the quality of the audio. But I want to read a particular verse because here where I'm interjecting this, we're talking about the lamp that was going out the light that was fading because the oil was fading out. This corresponds to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to start in verse 7. I'm reading this from the English Standard Version. It says, Now if the ministry of death, speaking of the law and the testimony if the ministry of death carved into letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Here's, that, here's the picture of the lamp that is fading, the light that is, being, that is burning low and burning out. The, the, you know, we're saying that the oil is faith. There was a faith. If you read Hebrews 11, there was a faith under that system that looked to and toward the coming of the consummation of hope, the consummation of the, the prophets and the law and the promises. In fact, when you look at two distinct groups of virgins, what is a virgin? A virgin is one who has not had a consummation of relationship. There has not been a union. That's the thing. They are going out to meet and to be received by the bridegroom so that there can be a marriage supper. There can be a union, a joining. There can be a consummation of this joining. So both on both aspects, both sides of the equation, whether wise or foolish, were virgins because they had not yet received this consummation of relationship. So it's being brought to an end. So those who were holding to something that was fading, that was coming to its close, that was being put aside because the surpassing, excellent, intended reality was coming and had come on the scene is what we're seeing a picture of. So he, he says, uh, will not the ministry, oh, I'm sorry, um, which was being brought to an end. Now verse 8, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, there, there was a glory, there, there was some aspect of oil there, you could say. The ministry of righteousness, which brings righteousness perfectly, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. That is what we're seeing. That's the distinction between these two. Again, I think 
just something um, of the nature of it. Because again, if we go back to the picture here of John the Baptist speaking of the coming of the bridegroom and his ministry of the friend of the bridegroom, he also says, he that speaks from the earth is earthly, but he that comes from the heaven is Lord of all things, is overall. He is giving a glimpse into the nature of his ministry, the nature of the testimony that he culminates in his ministry. The law and the prophets spoke unto him. So what is he saying? He is saying, even though that which he represented, the, the law and the prophets, had divine origin and spiritual intent or spiritual end in view, it was in and of itself natural and earthly. It could speak uh, of, of nothing beyond earthly things. It used earthly and natural testimonial elements. But it, dis, it, it, it spoke of something coming to and receiving and being joined to that spiritual reality, but he could never in his administration provide it. Therefore, the whole purpose of it was to point to it and give way to it. As the increase of the reality comes, the decrease of the testimony of that reality comes. And that's the distinction. Who was wise unto salvation to receive and come to the bridegroom and receive by faith what the testimony and the institution of the law actually pointed to? And who are the foolish who hold to a system and a form of godliness but deny the very power, the transforming power, the power that brings from death unto life, the power that brings, makes you dead to sin and no longer dead in sin. That's the distinction. So I felt like I needed to interject that. Hopefully it clarified something. Uh, now we'll keep going to the rest. So those who had oil in their vessels and went to meet him, they were, they were ready in his coming. They came to him because they believed, they had faith, they had submitted themselves to the power of another and they came to feast in the true feast of God. They came to the marriage supper of the Lamb as those who believed, not of works. If you hear what if you would hear what he says to them at the very end when they come back and they say, Open to us, open to us, after the door has been closed. And again, that takes you right back to the ark, the destruction of the first creation and another creation coming forth in one man that God had deemed righteous. The door was shut. And when they went in with him, the door was shut. And those without oil, those without faith, those without faith unto salvation were left outside. That tells you a little of something of what Romans chapter 3 says, right? The righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, testified of by the law and prophets. But the law, the prophets, the ordinances of it could never impute it and was never the means of attainment. 
the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded, shut out behind the door. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he a God of the Jew only? Is he not also of the Gentile? Yes, the Gentile also. Seeing that it is one God who shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. So that we then make void the law? No. God forbid. Does faith make it void? No. We establish the law. We bring the law to its true intent. We actually bring the law to the end that it <clears throat> was ordained by God to be brought to. That's what we're seeing here. Those who had oil in their lamps were those who would believe. Those who had faith. Those who did not have oil, whose lamps were burning out, were those who were still holding to a system, a law, a, a <clears throat> institution that was old and passing away, as Paul will say. That's in Hebrew. I'll read it real quick. Let me turn to it. I'm not going to read this whole piece, but in, eight, in Hebrews chapter 8, he's speaking of a new covenant being made and sought after because the first was flawed. It had a fault. Therefore, the, there was a second sought for. And he made a house uh, or made a, a covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then in verse 12 of chapter 8, he says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins and their iniquities, Will I remember no more? And then he says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old, decayed. And that which is decaying and waxeth old is ready to vanish away, to disappear. It's kind of the same thing John says as the representative of that system. He must increase. I must decrease. It is my purpose to give way. It is my purpose to give way to his greatness, to his allness. John knew that his entire ministry was meant to be culminated in the coming of this one. And his purpose was to acknowledge the coming of, to present him to the people, and to then give way and back off and fully submit to the excellency of this one that has now come. 
and his joy was made full in that. See, this is what we have to understand. We get it so mixed up so so often when we think about law and grace and law and faith and we think of those two things as just always at odds and fighting. The fact is the law and grace was never at odds. The law and faith was never at odds. It is at odds when you're trying to live by both, but the law itself as God's instituted it is not at odds with the grace of God because it was a testimony of a life that God would impute to the soul that would believe. The law had a spiritual intention. The law is not something evil. The law was of God and was intended by God to be summed up in his son. And that is what has happened. And the picture we're seeing there are those who have faith to enter this marriage who by faith would come and be received to the marriage feast and join and be united to their husband, to their bridegroom, and those who held to that which was fading away, held to something whose light was not full of oil and vanishing. That's the, that's the picture here. That's the same picture that he has on those who are on his you know, the sheep and the goats, those on his left and those on his right. And he says, I never knew you. It's the same, I never knew you. There's, there's not a corresponding relationship. Those who are of faith, those who have come by faith, the same thing Galatians 4 talks about. Those who have faith, those who have received the spirit of adoption in their hearts, crying out a father, those are the ones who are sons. Those are the ones, he will say, are known of God known of God. So let's go to the next parable and look at that one because again, it's the same picture we're seeing in Romans 9. Those who by faith attained and those who by law did not attain because while they were attempting by the law of righteousness to attain to the goal that was set forth in the law of righteousness, it became a law that they, they took to themselves so they could establish a righteousness of their own. But the one who came by faith and received and submitted to the righteousness that belongs to and is embodied in God himself attained to the righteousness God had always required and that the law testified of, and they received it in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the whole picture here. Come unto me. That's the whole picture. So let's go to the next uh, parable, and that's in Matthew 22. Now, there's a, there's a lot in here that we're going to look at, and I'm going to have to... <laughs> I'm going to um, break in in some of these verses, but let's let's just start reading in Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. So the same, the same picture is being painted, the same 
marriage and marriage feast is being uh, looked at here. So there was a king who made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Now, let's stop there. There are many times throughout uh, the testimony, the Old Testament, there's times in Jeremiah, uh, Daniel, um, even even in Revelation, it's referring to them, and it calls the prophets uh, his servants. The Old Testament prophets, it calls them his servants. So what you're seeing is this picture of God uh, making all things ready for this marriage for his son, and he sends forth the prophets to call them that were bidden to the wedding, those who had been invited. Basically, those who had been invited first were those who were invited by the law itself. The law, hear, hear these words, the law, the old covenant, all of that was an invitation to a wedding. It was an invitation to the feast. All of the feasts that had been set forth in the old covenant, they were testimonial pictures but they were in and of themselves an, inv an invitation to the greater feast, to the true feast, which was a wedding feast. And the prophets from Moses on were those who would call them to come to this feast. They would speak and declare in testimonial ways this invitation to come and to be found at the feast. But they would not come, it says. So the prophets went to those who were invited, those who were bidden to the wedding, and those bidden would not come. Again, those first invited. Verse 4, again, he sent forth other servants, saying, tell them what you're bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatlings are killed. And all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Now, let me interject this for a second. Come. Come. That word. Come unto the marriage. Does that not conjure up the whole idea? Come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. That rest is the result of the submission of the soul to his yoke. That's faith submitting to him as sufficient. As the one who has and possesses a knowledge of God and the knowledge of God toward him. That relationship. I submit to that. I submit to the yoke of God, be him being made unto me all things. Other servants came. He sent other servants. I think this is talking first of the prophets of the old covenant, and now I think he's talking about the, you know, the, the disciples. I think he's talking about the those who would preach the gospel. Other servants. Other servants he sent, I'm sorry. And they were bidding them, telling the ones who were invited. Because listen what he says to these people who were bidden. I have prepared my dinner. It's done. 
my oxen and my fatlings are killed. That points to the cross. That points to the once and for all sacrifice. The Lamb of God that took away the sins of the world. That's the thing. It's made ready. It's prepared. All things, because my oxen and fatlings are killed, all things are ready. Now come to the marriage. See, they're declaring the, to the Jews the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of the fulfillment of God in Christ. But the very thing they were invited to is now ready for them to come and eat, come and dine, come and partake. I wrote here in the in when he says, uh, my oxen and fatlings are killed, all things are ready. I said, now we get a glimpse of the nature of the dinner. It presents the reality of what God in abundance bestows to all who are bidden, not, on, not only first, but subsequent to their refusal to come, not only to those who were first bidden to come and refused, but when they refused, an abounding feast was still available and he called again. Still there. And he called again. Come to the feast. Again, the fatlings and the oxen is that once and for all offering as the, the lamb slain offered in his death, the single offering that accomplishes the very will of God. Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. It's the same thing that we read in Luke 14, verses 16 and 17. Then he said unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many and sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. They're ready. The all things that are ready are the all things that we, by faith now, have been freely given in Christ Jesus. That's the all things he offered to those who were bidden to the feast. Those who have come to the feast who have come to partake of Christ, who are come to be found in him, we have received the all things that are now ready. Not some things, and then we get the rest, but the all things that are ready and prepared, finished, done. But then in Matthew 22, it goes on after that bidding come, all things are ready. Listen to this word. They made light of it. And they went their ways. It goes directly to the heart of what is said of Jesus. He came to his own. And they received him not. They made light. They refused. They neglected. That's what that word made light of. It means they refused it and neglected it. That's why, you know, in Hebrews, the writer is so adamant, do not neglect this great salvation. And then it says, <clears throat> after they made light of it, they went, they went their way. Sounds a lot like the rich young ruler who went away. He went his way mad, sorrowful, not mad. He went away sorrowful after he heard the things that Jesus said because he had great possessions. Well, these who had the law as their righteousness, the law as their only 
ground of boasting and glorying in their accomplishments by ordinances and ceremonies and festivals and holy days and all of the things that they did, all of their works that they could boast in, they were in full possession of things that they deemed wealth and riches. They would not give it up. And they went and said, hey, I've got these things I have to look after. These are the possessions that I have that I have to go and I can't, I can't be bothered with this stuff. So they went one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and treated them spitefully and slew them. There's your servants. There's the prophets. There's the ones who came. They killed them. They put them. They, they beat them. They did all of this to them because they did not want to hear it. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth. He sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And you would think that would be the end of it. He was angry. He killed them all. The end. Nope. See, even in the midst, you could look at 70 AD and see the destruction that came upon a people who were dead set or had set their faces flint to hold to a system that had been over, overturned, a system, a, a testimonial system that had been fulfilled and rendered null and void. The destruction that came to that city, that land, much like Korah and his company, or not one stone was left upon another. Many would say of Korah's, after Korah's uh, and his company were swallowed up by the earth, it was as if nothing had ever been there. It was the same way. A plowed field was like, the, the place where the temple was was like a plowed field. There was that time, that 40-year span there between Christ and the destruction. But they had sealed their fate, and those who continued and would not come by faith to Christ had sealed the fate. Well, let's look at verse 8. The, the story doesn't end there. Then he said, the wedding is ready. There's still a wedding. This is what Paul says. There still remains a rest. That rest remains forever for any who will come to that rest. The wedding is still ready. But those that were bidden were not worthy. Here's the distinction again. The foolish, the wise, the worthy, the unworthy. Acts chapter 13. Looks what, look what happens here. Looks what is, look what is said at what is said here. Verse 43, Acts 13. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, Here's the 
first bidden to the to the wedding feast. Those it's necessary that the word of God first would have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you, what does that mean? You make light of it and refuse it and judge yourselves. Look at that. God doesn't judge you that way. You judge you that way. You have made this judgment. You've made this decision. You've pushed it, you put it from you. And you judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. So we turn to the Gentiles. There's one of the most perfect embodiments of what this parable is talking about. By putting the gospel of God, the kingdom of God in Christ away from you, counting it nothing, making light of it and refusing it, you have judged yourselves unworthy of the feast of God, of the marriage, supper, of eternal life. It's all the same thing. But in the refusal of him, you aren't worthy. You see that? Outside of the faith that joins you to the perfection of Jesus Christ, you are judged unworthy. You are unworthy. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Romans 3, we've already read that. So because you refuse this and have judged yourselves unworthy, we turn to the Gentiles. So he goes on in verse 9 of Matthew 22 here, and he says, Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. Any out there in the highways, go out there, and as many as, of you, as, many as you can find, invite them to this marriage, because it's ready. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together as many as they found, both bad and good. Don't overlook that. They gathered together as many as they could find, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. Notice the two distinctions given to describe those who were found and gathered, good and bad. Now, we definitely recognize the fact there is no none good in themselves. So we're seeing a seeming superficial attribution here. Because the point being made in using this, the bad and the good were all gathered they didn't, you know, screen them as they were coming in. Good and bad brought them in. Because the point being made is that the issue for those gathered is not good or bad. Neither is it qualified or disqualified. The issue is worthy or unworthy. Wise or foolish. 
Now we'll see here what makes the distinction. Verse 11, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto them, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him in the outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So he saw this man, and it says he did not have on the wedding garment. Now, that in mind, turn to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7. Zephaniah 1, 7 and 8. Hold thy peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, and he has bid his guests. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. the same picture we're seeing here didn't say he was naked it said he didn't have the proper marriage garment he had a strange garment on what does that mean in that day and time and this is true of Matthew 22 uh, those who were invited to the marriage There was a garment prepared for everyone who was invited. Everyone invited to the wedding had a garment that they were to put on. That was the rule of the feast. And so this one in Matthew 22 had never been properly, had never applied. They had to apply. They're invited. They apply for uh, the garment. The garment's made for them. So they have the proper garment, the proper apparel for the deal. So that person now being seen not having the wedding garment, he never had applied for the proper garment. What does that mean? In spiritual terms when we're seeing the meaning of this parable it means that he had never believed he had never believed and to believe is to be clothed with christ and that is a garment according to galatians 3 and 27 through being baptized into christ you have put on christ where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, that is a garment that negates the distinctions of Jew and Gentile or good and bad. So the Bible knowledge commentary says it this way. He had failed to appropriate what the king had provided. He had not put on the garment the king provided to all the guests. What does that mean? 
He had not believed. Again, this is about believing. This is about faith. This is about receiving the gospel, the invitation to come to the marriage. And when those who received the invitation came in, they were clothed with the proper garment. This one was not. And when that intruder was exposed as not being rightly clothed upon, having no right, therefore, to be at the feast, it says he was speechless. And further, you know, we'll see that the Pharisees took notice that the Sadducees were silenced and made speechless after Jesus answered their question, their question on the resurrection as well. And further on in Matthew 22. And I think this perfectly is what Paul says in Romans 3 again. We know absolutely that whatever things the law says, it says to those within the sphere of the law in order, every, in order that every mouth may be closed up or shut and the whole world may become guilty before God. He was speechless. His mouth was shut. The exposure of the heart unclothed, unclothed with the righteousness of Christ. Silence men, silences all men, and shows the singular need to be salvation by grace through faith. Faith is the only means of having right to feast at the marriage dinner. See, these parables show exactly why the Gentiles who sought righteousness by faith alone attained it. They appropriated a gift. They received an invitation. They believed and received what God alone could provide. They had oil in their vessel. They received what God provided and attained it as a gift, not a work bestowed, not a wage given by labor rendered. But they came to receive freely as those who would come and had come unto him all things that would be given by the, by the bridegroom and the king, the marriage they would partake of a joining together with him. And this man, it says, was taken, bound, and cast in the outer darkness because he did not have the wedding garment on. Matthew chapter 8 speaks of this. Verse 5, When Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. For I'm a man under authority, having soldiers under authority, having soldiers under me, and, and I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. 
and my and and uh, to my servant do this, and he doeth it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Here's those from the highways, the good and the bad. But the children of the kingdom, the Jews who claim rights to the kingdom is who he's referring to, shall be cast out into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the same picture. It's those who claimed a right that did not belong to them because the only right the only means to have the right to enter the kingdom, to enter the marriage, and to meet the bridegroom was to receive him by faith. Not of works, not I, but Christ. That is the submission of the soul to the excellency of another. And the end of Romans chapter 9 in verse 33 he says this behold I lay in Zion because it says those who did not receive they stumbled upon the stumbling stone well they did for it is written behold I lay in Zion a stumbling stone a rock of offense and whosoever believeth on him there it is again, the necessity of faith. Those who believe on him shall not be ashamed. They shall not blush in shame. And be humiliated. And it takes you back to Ezekiel. I think it's 42 and 43. I know this part is 43, but the picture of it goes when he begins to measure the house. Ezekiel's taken into the, into the temple and into the house of God and the man with the measuring reed in his hand begins to measure it. And that man measures the entirety of the house. The fullness and the vastness and the greatness of that house is fully measured and it's beyond anything that any man could imagine the glorious house and then after that happens God says thou son of man show the house to the house of Israel what does that mean declare to them the true house that is measured by the measure of a man show them there's a greater house than the one they're holding to show them there's something that is measured perfectly and fully The fullness of the stature of Christ measures that house. Show that house to this house who claims that they are the house. Show the right house to them so that they might be ashamed of their iniquities. See, the shame and the humiliation that comes to them is the fact that they have held to a house that is insufficient. They have held to a thing that is insufficient. 
and has no glory, it has no excellency when compared to the thing that exceeds in glory. But if you hold to the thing, there will be nothing but disappointment and humiliation. There will be shame in this because you have not believed. That's the only necessity. Believe on the greatness and excellency of Christ's sufficiency. Hold to it. Bow down to it. Kneel, kneel before it and submit to it. And let him be in you. Let him abide in you as what you are not. And be made unto you as what you could never be. That is salvation. I'm not telling you to do that if you have Christ in you. You have submitted to the righteousness of God, and that submission is your very salvation. You are now under the sovereign power and rule of grace. Grace now reigns where sin once reigned. That is a reality we must grow in and comprehend and come to know in more clear and perfect ways as he reveals in us that one to whom we have submitted our souls. I'm saying that those to whom Paul is speaking or of whom Paul is speaking here, they did not submit. They did not submit. And that was his whole desire for them, is that they would just submit to the righteousness of God, which is to be saved and be found in him, having nothing of their own. Because then he says in verse 11, this is in Ezekiel 43, if they be ashamed, if they comprehend their shame, Show them the form of the house. Listen to these words. These who had rejected, there's a greater house that's come now. Show them this house. And if they are ashamed, then show them the form of the house, the fashion thereof, the goings out thereof, and the coming in thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the laws thereof, and write it in their sight, what is that going to do? That they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof and do them. You think they're going to do them just because you said something to them? No, this is a picture of something much greater than that. You declare to them the greatness and sufficiency of Christ in his fullness. And if they will come to me and repent, Here's what I will do. I will bring all of this in them that they may keep the whole of it, even all of the ordinances of it, and do them. What's that sound like? It sounds like the righteousness of the law would be fulfilled in us. That's by his presence. That's the only way the whole of the law and the ordinances of the law are kept. It's kept by Christ living in us as the righteousness and righteous requirements of the law in their perfect fulfillment. It's him being in us, the law fulfilled. This is what this is a picture of. 
That is what Paul means. If you will just believe on this one who is a rock of offense to many, a a stone of stumbling to those who still seek righteousness aside from him, if you will believe, you will not be ashamed. You will not have reason to be ashamed for you will be complete in him. In him you will receive and have, if you've come to him, received all things freely and fully. All right, guys, we'll stop there. Thank you for your patience. I know this has been a longer session. I'm, uh, I hope you'll be patient enough to listen through the whole thing. I appreciate you uh, doing this and, and listening and being there, as I always say to you. Thank you for your support. Those of you who support financially with your prayers, with your letters, your emails to me, just the ways that you let me know you're there, it means a lot, and I appreciate it. So until next time, guys, love you very much. Amen. Amen.